about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Alrighty friends, good morning, how we doing? This is it. We're concluding the Song of Songs series today. Some of you are thinking, can't we go longer? And some of you are thinking, this thing's been about five weeks too long. So uh, if you're just joining us, we have been talking about sex. We've been talking about intimacy. We've been talking about chastity, the sanctity of being single. We've been talking about all these different relational stuff. And uh, what Craig and I have been doing has been, as we've been working through this book called The Song of Songs, highlighting all of the most significant topics that is in the book that we feel like is helpful for our community to hit, and today is the last day. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Song of Songs chapter 5. Our ushers are coming down the aisle. If you need a copy of scripture, they would love to get you one. And uh, so many of you know this uh, next Sunday is going to be my last Sunday here at Central, and uh, it's bittersweet from the perspective of not... Uh, loving the fact that things are changing and that we've, we've got to go, but really excited about the teaching that I get to do next Sunday. So hopefully you'll be able to be here for that. It's kind of a sending teaching, so it's a one-off. It's not connected to a series. Um, but I'm thrilled to be able to conclude this series today here in the Song of Songs chapter 5. We're actually going to look at a passage in the Song of Songs chapter 6. But I want to just give you a, a little bit of quick context for chapter 5 because Craig talked on this last week. And one of the things that, that Craig did, and one of the things we've been doing throughout the series is we've been saying, hey, this is poetry. This functions a little bit differently than other types of literature in the Bible. Because we've got all kinds of literature in the Bible. We've got, 
history, we've got law codes, we've got prophecy, apocalyptic literature, gospel, parable, different types of narratives, and all of these things have to be understood as such. One of the things we said at the first week, and we've kind of repeated it throughout the other weeks, is that we have been kind of operating under these four guideposts or bedposts, if you will, for interpreting the Song of Songs. And we said that through Douglas Sean O'Donnell, this quote, this is a song about human love found in the Bible written to give us wisdom. That this is a song. So not everything in this poetry is literal. Craig talked a little bit about that last week, and I know sometimes in our 21st century Western minds we hear we're not being literal and we kind of wig out. Well, you know Craig and I take the text very, very seriously. So when Craig talked about this isn't literal, he was talking about that in poetry, metaphor is used a lot. So, for example, um, if metaphor wasn't in play in the Song of Songs and you just looked at what this woman in the story looked like, because the guy keeps saying like, well, this is what you're like and all of this. Some artist came along and said, okay, if everything the dude said was absolutely literal about her, this is what she would look like. (laughs) All right, now now you can Google this, just Song of Songs, literal, uh, and the images, and this will come up. This is hysterical. He says to her in the the book, um, your hair is like a flock of goats. And there's like 25 goats in her hair there. Your temples are like half-cut pomegranates. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Come on, ladies, that's sexy right there, right? You know, so he's got all of these different things that he says about her in the book. And so there's, there's a lot of metaphor, there's a lot of imagery that is used. And that's precisely what's happened in chapter 5, where Craig talked last week about how... Here's the literal side of it. They are coming together in sexual union. But it's told through what's known as metaphorical scene or a metaphorical setting in which all of these other things are placed in the story to help you understand the emotion that the woman is going through. Some people see this as a dream, but other people interpret it as, as, as a metaphorical scene. So what's happened is, is that it's time for them to come together to consummate the marriage. The woman, as Craig talked last week, opens herself physically for the act, but emotionally she's kind of still holding back. But during the act of the intimacy, she finally gives her heart to him. She opens up her heart as well, um, but he's done. Like, they just had the release, and he doesn't have the same vigor and passion that he had going into that moment. And the language that is used in the metaphorical scene is that it feels like he has left. He's still there, but he's left. And the language of Song of Songs 5 is that it's like she goes running into the streets and she gets beat up by the watchman because she feels like her heart has just gotten crushed in this moment. So there's a literal thing that's happening, but it's a metaphorical language to help us understand what's going on here. And then in the Song of Songs 5, which Craig didn't get to this part, but the last half of Song of Songs 5, she starts in her mind recalling all of the wonderful features about this man. And she uses physical terms about his physical stature. Craig talked about that a little bit. But it's also to reflect the inward reality of this man. 
And so she's regathering herself. And then you have in chapter 6, these friends who are part of this metaphorical scene. They kind of help keep the story going forward to help us as the reader understand the emotions that the woman is feeling. And they say, where has your beloved gone? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Most beautiful of women, which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? So what has just been painted in the picture of this metaphorical scene is it's like he's still there, but to her it feels like he has left and she's gotten beat up by the watchman like her heart's been pounded on. But she recalls who he is and now it's like, well, where did he go? Well, he didn't really go anywhere. Notice what she says. She's talking about how he is there. Verse two, my beloved has gone down to his garden. Now, friends, this is very explicit here because garden in the Song of Songs is used of her body. So what he says here, or what she says here, is my beloved has gone down to his garden, to my body, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. So what she's saying here is she's regathered herself in this story. And whether the fact is is that this is a later sexual encounter or this is just a continuation from what has just transpired, she goes, man, I feel like he left me in this moment because of I didn't open myself up fast enough. He's already done. It feels like why couldn't he wait? You know what I mean? It's all this going back and forth. But then what she does and the point of what I want to get at is that when she regathers herself and she looks objectively, if you will, on this relationship, the way that she summarizes this relationship that she has to this man is she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. How many of you have heard this passage before? Okay, most of you have. If you've ever spent any time in the Song of Songs, this is the one passage that everybody knows. It is arguably the most beautiful Uh, line in the entire song of songs. Uh, In Hebrew, it's stunning as well. It's Ani Ladodi Vadodi Lee. Ani Ladodi Vadodi Lee. In fact, Shallon and I each have a a ring. I'm wearing it today. I don't normally wear it. Um, I'm kind of a one ring kind of guy. But um, it just says in Hebrew, Ani Ladodi Vadodi Lee. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And we always wear these rings when we're separated from each other. Uh, you'd think, well, doesn't one ring do the trick? Well, I don't know, but apparently one for each hand. So um, we wear this, and it's just a reminder that I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And it's this beautiful passage that talks about, like, the exclusivity of a relationship, that talks about coming together with someone else. Now, this is a passage that, in various forms, shows up two other places in the Song of Songs, in chapter 2, verse 16, and in chapter 7, verse 10. And in 7, verse 10, it says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. So one of the ways that we can understand how this passage is used in the Song of Songs is, yes, it is around this sexual intimacy that a couple shares. 
In fact, this idea, I have my beloved's and my beloved is mine, talking about physically with one another, harkens forward to a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that the Apostle Paul will write to Jesus' followers in a city called Corinth in Greece today. Notice what Paul writes. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now there's a larger context in what Paul is doing here. You can read it on your own time and unfortunately some people have abused this passage. But what Paul is basically saying is that when you come together in covenant marriage with someone else your body in a sense belongs to them their body belongs to you there is this sense in this passage i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine is that it is speaking into the physical intimacy of the relationship but it goes deeper than that because one of the things that we've been saying all throughout this series is that obviously marriage is much more than sexual intimacy The intimacy side is important and it's central to what it is to be married. But it's not the only thing. It goes much deeper than that. That when two people come together in covenantal marriage, it's not just a bonding together physically. It's a bonding together of spiritually and emotionally and hopes and dreams and longings all interwoven together in this relationship. So not only does this passage, in a sense, hearken forward to the New Testament and something Paul will say, but it also hearkens back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 2, to the passage that has served as the foundation for us in this series, Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. United, this word devak, to be glued, to be stuck together, that you come together in this thing called marriage. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. There is an interwoving of lives together. You become stuck together. And then the language continues, we've explored in this series, and they become one flesh. The word one here is the word achad. It is a word in Hebrew that can mean um, alone or one, and not only just one, and that's how we've been looking at it, but in both a singular and plural sense, like, okay, one remote versus the plural, one church, one nation, one team. And we said that the Hebrew language has a lot of depth and nuance that when a keyword or phrase is used in one context and it's used in another context, you look at to go, is there a connection here? And when God says that the man and woman become together and they become one, interestingly, the word ahad is also used of God a few books later in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is ahad. And several weeks back, we talked about how if marriage is ahad and God is ahad, then marriage and God are connected. And one of the ways that we expounded upon that was the idea that marriage breeds hope that what has been divided can become united. And when we did that teaching and we talked about marriage in the Bible and we also talked about the sanctity of being single in the Bible, I made the point that this isn't the only connection with which we can understand how marriage is a chad and God is a chad. Because when it talks about coming together as one, when it talks about I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, 
there is another way that we can understand the significance of this passage in connection to that Genesis passage, which links together Deuteronomy, which all basically says marriage is one, God is one, and they are linked together. So I want to talk about, for today, this idea of the one, That when we come together and we talk about, well, some of you will say, hey, well, I'm dating this person or we've gotten engaged and I have found the one, right? Or you get married and you say, I have found the one. When we talk about finding the one, we generally talk about it in the context of, I have found the one to complete me. This person is it. They complete me. I don't need another one. I have found the one because they complete me. And this kind of brings us to a very well-known film from the 1990s. Some of you already know where I'm going. Jerry Maguire. Okay? You know this scene. If you haven't seen the film, here's what's going on in the story. Jerry Maguire, played by Tom Cruise, is a sports agent. And he has this client, it's like the up and downs of being a sports agent. But towards the end of the story, Tom Cruise experiences the ultimate high of a sports agent. His player just had the winning touchdown. And this is the implications of this is millions of dollars. And there's like this euphoric celebration that is short-lived. Because Tom Cruise in this moment recognizes it's not all it's cracked up to be because he's experiencing a moment without the love of his life. And it's like he recognizes this is the love of my life and she is not with me. So he goes racing back to the home of the character of Renee Zellweger. And he comes into the living room and there's like a bunch of people in the living room. And then they have this conversation from across the room. And Tom is talking about his character, Jerry Maguire, is talking about the night and what has happened and why it felt so empty. And then in like the most dramatic of moments, Tom Cruise takes this long pause pause and this is what happens next You complete me. And every dude who was watching this was like, what a sap. (laughs) Right? And every woman is like, I want someone to say that to me. (laughs) You complete me. Here's the problem. It's an absolute fallacy. It's an utter lie. Jerry Maguire blew it for all of us when he says, you complete me. You see, here's the reality, friends. Another human being was never designed to complete another human being. At best, 
another human being can complement us, but they don't complete us. This passage, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, is not a passage about completion. It is a passage that speaks to someone complimenting another person wonderfully, perfectly, yes, but not completing them. See, we use the language like I'm looking for the one or I found the one. But here's the truth of the matter. You're never looking for the one. You're actually looking for the two. Here's what I mean by that. We're not looking for just one. We are looking for two. Because we're looking for the one to compliment us. And we're looking for the one to complete us. And here's the kicker. It's not the same person. It can't be the same person. Because at best, another human being can compliment us. But it is only God who can complete us. We're never, never looking for the one. We're looking for the two. The one to complement us and the one to complete us. And we can't get these two confused. Because when we do, it really messes things up. See, if we don't recognize that God is the one who completes us and that another human being compliments us, then what we often do is this. We take this idea of God completing us and we kind of shove it off to the side a little bit. And kind of in many ways, we almost turn our back to the reality because what we do is we take the person that we love dearly We take our spouse, that person we are in relationship with, and we stick them at the center of our world. And now, all of a sudden, we look for not only someone to compliment us, but we also look for someone to complete us, and we begin to demand of them that which they were never designed to ultimately provide. We put our identity in the spouse. We put our value with the spouse. We think in terms of our hopes being fulfilled in them. We think in terms of our ultimate security being in them. And we start demanding from them these things. Now, in some cases, it may not always be fully in the spouse. We start thinking about our identity or our value. Oftentimes for men, it's partly with their spouse, but it's also in part with their jobs. Now, that's not exclusively. Women can do the same. But oftentimes, the propensity for men is to find identity and worth in, yes, in their spouse, but also in their work. 
And this is why oftentimes when we lose our job, we have an identity crisis. We wonder, what value do I have to offer? Who am I? Because so much of our identity is wrapped up something other than the one who completes us, God. Or for example, many women will often put an identity, their value, their security in their husband, and they will look at this as, I find myself in him. Or, for many cases, for mothers, they find their identity in their kids. This is why so many marriages break down when empty nest enters into the equation. Because our value, our identity, has been roped into places that they're not supposed to be. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves requiring from someone else to do for us what only God can do. This is one of the major reasons why marriages struggle. Because we're looking for something in another person that they were never designed to give. Now, well, what role does this person play? They are a complement. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're not worth anything, that they don't do anything. No, our spouse plays a pivotal role in our life. Our spouse is, our spouse is supposed to offer love and encouragement and support and a sense of security. Not ultimate security, but security in the sense that if a husband leaves home or if a woman leaves home for a you know, few days with work, there needs to be a sense of security that you're not worrying that your spouse is going to be messing around with somebody else. I mean, that's just basic reality, understanding, and relationship that you want to offer that sense of security to know we are secure. But it's not ultimate security in life. A spouse can offer that encouragement, can offer that love. As we've talked before about Ezra Konegdo, someone who walks alongside of you, does for you what you can't do for yourself, compliments you in that way. Someone who stands in front of you and in love, questions, challenges, and confronts you. Again, in love to help you move the direction that you need to, that you won't go on your own because you need that iron sharpening iron. You need that confrontation from time to time. You need that conflict in order to bring strength to a relationship. There are a host of things that the spouse is responsible for doing. But the problem is, is that when we begin to turn our back on the reality of who God is, and we try to make our spouse both a person that complements us and completes us, then we get into trouble because we need something from them that they can't give, and we hold them accountable because we think it's their fault. Not what's lacking in me. See, one of the things that we talk about here at Central is that if you're just visiting today or you're like, hey, help me understand a little bit about what's the ethos of Central? What is Central about? We would tell you that Central is about amplifying hope and life to all. That Jesus came to give us life, as he says in John, and to give it to the full that we want to experience life, we want to experience hope, and that's what Central is all about. And if you were to then say, so how do you do that? If that's what you're about, how do you do that? We would say, oh, it's, it's really simple. We talk about three things, that we need to be with God in community and on mission. That if we want to experience the hope and life that Jesus came to give, that is available to humanity, 
Then we need to be with God in community and on mission. Friends, it all begins with God. It's the awareness that what sits at the center of our stage in life is not another human being. It's not that this person isn't important. It's just that it's not the most important relationship we have. That our spouse, the person that compliments us if we are in a relationship, is part of the picture, absolutely. But everything rises and falls with whether or not we allow God to be at the center of our world. That we take our lives and we say, God, I am going to set you at the center of my stage, at the center of my world, and I am going to orient myself around you. I'm not going to demand that you orient yourself around me. You've established who you are. You have given us your scriptures. You have outlined truth for life, and now it is my responsibility to do the best I can with the community that I'm with, with the mission that we're on, to figure out what it means to make sure that I am living a life with you, that you sit center, that I recognize that if I am in relationship, this person compliments me, yes, but I am not going to demand of them more than what they have been designed to do, that I am going to look at my life and my relationship with you, and I'm going to say, I find my identity in you. I find my value in you. You inform this of me. You let me know what my identity is. You let me know what my worth lies. You're the one who provides me with hope. You're the one who gives me ultimate security. And when we can grow in our relationship with God, then what we allow God to do is to fill up in us those things that we need And now because God has filled us up, we can now engage with this spouse that we have or with other people, not out of our emptiness and in need for you to do something for me, but now we can interact with them out of our fullness because God has already filled us up. And now we can love one another, period, not with an agenda, not with I need this from you. I I need this. I need you to speak some nice words to me because I need to be filled, like I'm built up. Like I need you to speak into my ego. We won't say that overtly, but oh, how often do we bend a conversation just so the person will say something that's gonna help us feel a little bit better? And now we distort the relationships that we're in. And God goes, I'm the one who completes you. I'm the one that provides you with your identity, your value, your hope, your ultimate security. And it's our responsibility to grow in our relationship with God. By the way, with this picture, this is why when we've talked in this series about the sanctity of being single, this is why single people aren't incomplete if they're in relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this is where everything is centered around. This, to be in relationship, to be married, is great, but at best, it is a complement to the story. 
When we say to single people, well, you're not complete until you get married, we are totally misunderstanding the reality of humanity and the reality of the scriptural story. Because for single people, and by the way, when we talked about the sanctity of singleness, Jesus is totally fine if people are married and totally fine if people are single. Jesus was single. Jesus said there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. And Jesus was totally fine with people being single because for Jesus, being married isn't the ultimate expression of being human. And so therefore, if you are single and you are not in a marriage relationship, right, which makes you single, um, you are still able to be complete because you're in relationship with the only one who can complete you. Now, that doesn't mean that single people need to run this lone ranger kind of lifestyle. We need people. There is this vertical dimension in life, our relationship to God. There's also a horizontal relationship, the relationship we have with one another, that we need to be in community, that if you are single, you are not married, you still need community. But recognize that when you're in relationship with God, there you become complete. Which just leads us all, I think, just to a very simple, basic question this morning. Which is, what does your relationship with God look like today? How can you grow in your relationship with God? What does your prayer life look like? What is your time times of getting into the scriptures look like? How are you increasing your relationship with God to have this dynamic relationship with the one who completes you, the one who sits at the center of it all, the one who can do for you what no one or no other thing can do? Are you allowing God to inform your identity? Or are you allowing your work to carry a much bigger weight than what our work is designed to do? Again, work is an expression of ourselves. It's, it's good for us to feel like we're tied up in our work because it is an extension of who we are. We can't completely separate that. But if we're looking for our ultimate value, if you're looking for your security in your job or in another person or in your bank account, it's a missed placed trust because it is only God who can complete us and in the same token though what does it look like for those of you who are married how are you and your spouse growing and increasing in your relationship with God how are the both of you together getting closer to God how are you orienting your lives around God together? Not just in your own personal life, because that, that can be for someone whether you're single or if you're married. But how do you as a couple grow in your relationship? What does it look like for you to spend time together, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in scripture reading, whether it's maybe in some other means, maybe for some of you, you already do that and maybe you're going, well, how, how can we do something else? Maybe you choose a book and you both say, okay, one month from now, we're gonna schedule a date night. We're both gonna read this book. We're gonna go out, we're gonna have a great dinner. We're gonna plan an hour and a half at the restaurant and we're just gonna have a conversation about what is going on in this book and how God is speaking to us in this. 
Or maybe you get together every week for 10 minutes, one time. Or, you know, you start there and you just say, hey, just, let's just talk specifically about how is God meeting you in your prayer time? How, how is God meeting you in your, in your scripture reading? Are there any conversations that you're having that is somehow helping you to understand God anew and just spend some time together? Because here is, is my, my, my belief, is that when we become closer to God, we become closer to one another. The closer we become to God, the closer we become to one another. Now, I, I believe that, that God is so unbelievably gracious that marriages that do not put God at the center can still be experienced as a good marriage. I don't think that God looks on people and says, well, you don't really acknowledge me as your Lord and Savior, so, well, no blessings coming your way. But that God is good to all. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about how God provides love and grace to all people. And that one of the theological terms that is used is this idea of common grace, that God just gives grace abundantly to to all people even if they don't acknowledge him and that if for some of us we look on someone else's marriage and we go wow their marriage seems better than ours and yet God isn't at the center of their marriage I still think they can have a good marriage because I think God is helping them to have a great marriage even if or a good marriage even though they don't even acknowledge it but here's what I believe in the depth of my bones that if you have two people who are passionately seeking after God. They have the greatest capacity to have the best kind of marriage that God designed marriage to be for humans to experience here on earth. And that one of our goals is to say, how can we, as a couple, help each other doing things together and encouraging one another in order to get closer to this God who completes us, who does for us as a marriage which we can't do for ourselves. But when we give ourselves to this God and we say, you have my heart, you have my hopes, you have my dreams, you have my worth, you have my identity, give me what you want to give, this whole thing works a whole lot better. So pursue the one who compliments you. This is what this series has been all about. We've been talking about all the different facets in a relationship and what it means to not take any aspect of your relationship lightly. If there's something broken, if there's something that you're struggling, let's talk about what can that marriage now become? What steps do you need to take? Pursue this relationship We've said throughout this series, if your marriage is struggling, restoring the gift starts tomorrow, a 10-week class on, on repairing these marriages, making them stronger. Man, if God has spoken to you four weeks ago in this series and you've done nothing about it, why haven't you done anything about it? Don't take this lightly. We want you to have great marriages If you haven't had the conversation around intimacy, there is no other series we can do to get the conversation going than what we've done. I mean, out of luck on this one. If you haven't had the conversation, have the conversation. If you know you need to get counseling, schedule the stinking appointment. 
Stop sitting back on your hands hoping this thing's going to go away. If something has been stirred in this series, it isn't going away. You're just choosing to deny it. And it's going to continue to pop its head up. And it's going to be not helpful every time it happens. We want you. This whole series has been about, man, pursue this one. Pursue this relationship well. If this is what God has gifted you in your life to have. But we're also saying, as Craig and I put this series together, we would be remiss not to have a time where we just emphasize God is the one who's at the center of it all. This whole story we get to live out here on earth, this is, this is not about us. This is about us being part of a bigger story. That this is a God who loves us dearly. This is a God who wants to give us what we have been created to receive only from him. And he is available to all of us. How can we also pursue the one who completes us and increase our relationship with him? Because we're always looking for the two. We're looking for the one to complement us. And we're looking for the one to complete us. And they're not the same person. And when we can make the distinction and deal with both of them on the terms with which they've been designed to be interacted with, we experience a wholeness in our own life and our own journey. Pursue the one who compliments you and keep pursuing the one who completes you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this series. We thank you for the privilege it has been to dive into a very challenging topic, a topic that is all over our world. We can't walk into a CVS, a Walgreens, a Barnes & Noble, a you name it, Meyer, whatever, without seeing just rows of magazines talking about sex and beauty and what it is from a world's perspective, God. And we thank you for the chance to have dug into this topic over the last several weeks. God, as we are reminded of today, and maybe a little bit of a different way, but I would imagine for most of us, um, this, this wasn't hard to get our minds around. God, the story is about you, and you have created us a certain way, and you desire to speak into our lives a certain way. And God, we are thankful for what you have done in our lives, for how you have designed us and how you've created us. God, I pray for those of us in here, uh, well, just all of us, regardless if we're in a relationship or not, that we would just take stock today of what our relationship is with you and, and ask questions about how do we grow in a dynamic relationship with you through word, through prayer, through silence, through Sabbath, through all the different ways, God, in which we can slow down and just get our minds around who you are and allow you to speak ever deeper into our unfolding story. But then, God, also for those who are married, I, I pray that we would pursue one another well, that so much of our series has talked about how do we do this well, but to recognize, God, that if we want to grow closer together as a marriage, to grow closer together as a couple, God, we've got to grow closer together with you, that you are the one that unites us together, that you are the one who draws us closer to you. You are the one who fills us up so that we can continue to love one another out of our fullness and not out of our emptiness. God, I pray for marriages today and throughout this series that have struggled and are struggling. I pray, God, for hope. I pray that you would come along those who have had to go through the difficult um, task of signing papers and who are just feeling incredibly deflated 
and they feel like their hearts have been ripped out, God, would you meet them anew? Would, they, would you let them know that your grace and your mercy and your love, it is new every morning? And that, God, you would put the, put the broken pieces of us back together wherever you find those broken pieces. And God, one other thing, I just pray for anyone who is here today who doesn't have a relationship with you, that maybe somehow, God, you have met them in a unique way. Maybe you've been meeting them in a unique way for weeks or months on end. And maybe they're just coming into an awareness of who you are. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to them. That, God, we would all recognize that life can't be lived to the full, that we can't feel a sense of completion in our life until we come into relationship with you. And not that you fix everything and that everything is peachy dory and wonderful the next morning, but God, that, that you walk with us, you journey with us, you help us put the broken pieces back together because God, that is the kind of God that you are. That's the God we've been singing to in this service. That's the reality of, of who you've demonstrated yourself to be throughout human history and in our lives as well. So God, may we just have a refounded understanding of who you are to put you at the center of everything and just to experience the hope in life that you give. God, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for the joy that has been ours today to engage your words. They are living and active. Thank you that they have left off the pages. They've entered into our head. God, may it continue into our heart and out through our hands as we seek to follow you ever more closely this week. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Micah, thank you, friend. Hey, real quick, you're going to be leaving here today. These green Christmas bags. Um, as you go out, this is one of the great things that we do here at Central called the Christmas Store. Yes, it is not Thanksgiving yet. Yes, we're with Walmart and already talking about Christmas. Uh, but this is important to get the, ahead of the game on this. So um, this right here says, please fill this bag with gifts for a boy age 9 through 11. Suggested gifts are these. Ten suggestions. You can grab any age group, but we would just really encourage you to be able to do that. Also, friends, if uh, anything in the sermon today or in the music or whatever has stirred something up, you would like someone to pray with you. We're going to have people up front. We also have a prayer room off to the side. If you want to talk about what it means to put God at the center of your life, maybe for the first time or in an ever-increasing measure, we'd love to go deeper with you if that would be helpful to you. And for the rest of us, let's stand, shall we? And let's uh, end with a blessing. My friends and family here at Central, so great to have been with you today. I pray that you leave here today recognizing that at least for all of us, we're pursuing the one who completes us. And for those of us who are in relationship, may we continue to pursue the one who complements us and may we always know the difference. And may you leave here today being reminded once again that the God we love, the God we serve, the God that has made himself known to us is a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy, and a God of forgiveness. May that reality be fully present to you this week. Grace and peace be with all of you. See you next Sunday. Take care.